Talk Description to Me with Christine Malik and J.J. Hunt. Hi, I'm Christine Malik. And I'm J.J. Hunt. This is Talk Description to Me, where the visuals of current events and the world around us get hashed out in description-rich conversations. On December 17th, we hosted our live Zoom event, A Year in Review, in which listeners were invited to ask questions about the events of 2020 and the world around us. The conversations were wide-ranging and fun. This is the second of two episodes featuring some excerpts from the event. One thing I've always wondered about, too, is Mount Everest, like what it looks like when people climb that and what, like, you know, because it's so iconic, but yeah. you hear about it and you read books about it, but you just don't know the same with a lot of things, like even the moon landing, like you hear the scratchy mm. noise, but you don't know how did they come out of that capsule? Was it like? backwards or frontwards or feet like and what did it seem like when they stepped down and what were they wearing on their bodies and I think live description is great and I've grown up without it and with family members saying I'm trying to figure it out like if we're sitting in a movie and I said what's happening (laughs) just a minute just a minute you know I'm trying to figure but but I think what you give us that that audio description still doesn't give me and this would be a case for, say, the inauguration. They take for granted that we know certain things that we might not know, I think. Like, that's what I've loved about your podcast is, Christine, you asked a question that I would ask because I have no idea what that is. So say, yeah. I'm trying to think of an example, but say you were talking about um I remember Something. one, the, we were yeah. talking about fire tornadoes and he was giving this lurid, yeah. terrible description. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm shaking in my boots. However, let's take a step back. And what does a normal tornado look like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I wouldn't know that. So I think that describers, because they only have so much time. And I guess like someone so, said, they do it at the last minute. They don't. But, but with this, you can say, actually, do you actually know? Without describing all of Mount Everest, just a very short little audio <laughs> description Mount Everest story. A few years back, uh, there was a made-for-TV movie here in Canada. I think it was just called Everest. Several, like, three-part series about the, these Canadian climbers climbing Mount Everest. And, like, you know, uh, episode one, someone uh, dies. Episode two, someone dies. This is really <laughs> Climbers are being... saying steps it up right there. Yeah. Oh, and... exactly. It, it was, oh, I mean, yeah. it was grueling and people are losing fingers and getting trapped in ice shell. Like it was just grueling. But the cut that I got, I was the one writing the audio description for it. And I got a rough cut of the film. So it was locked. The picture was locked, but the special effects weren't done. So I could, the timing could be done correctly, but they were then going to take, they were, they were continuing to work on the special effects as I was writing the audio description. And so all of this, you know, some of the special effects weren't done. Some of the avalanches looked pretty weak to me, but I had to imagine what they were going to look like as it was finished. 
three different one hour episodes, we finally get to the final moment where these experienced Canadian climbers missing fingers finally reach the top of Mount Everest and the camera, you know, follows them up the final steps. They get to the top of the mountain and in the background is a chairlift. Because oh, they oh. hadn't edited it out yet, and it was filmed <laughs> oh, in Vancouver. And I laugh, laugh, laugh. Love that story. They asked me to tell that one all the time. <laughs> I think the big deal about Everest getting to the top only, I'm only saying this because my optometrist did it, made the oh, wow. trek. And she just said, the view, okay, which hopefully you get there on a clear day, uh, day. That, right yeah. but she apparently did and the view was spectacular and gave you this awe-inspired feeling of how small you are and the you know the creation of the the world and, and all that is what yeah. the impression that I got. You're literally like, worth you're on the roof. For like sure. if you go into space, they say that. Like if you look yeah. at the Earth from oh, space, you get imagine. this whole yeah. like different perspective. And I would, I would. Yeah. This is Carl. I would love it if you guys get an episode on space. You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Star, oh, yeah planet, I, the International space, space Station, the SpaceX rocket. You know. They're talking yeah. about women walking on the moon very soon. Any of that stuff. I would just love anything space related. So I'm going to tell you guys right now, one my, my prime professional ambition, my cherished professional ambition is to interview Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut. Oh, so yeah. my oh. scheme is to that, get him on as a- That book was great. I know his book is great, right? Great. So I want to get him on as like a guest host where, um, you know, JJ does the visuals and then- Mr. Hatfield says, okay, that's the module where the, and you know, and, and so if anyone knows Chris Hatfield, just get me past his <laughs> Wranglers, please, because that's. Yeah, because he did a great job describing the space station and, oh, you yeah. know, what it was like to, to what it is like to live there. He actually, when he was amazing. the commander, he, I was following him with great delight and his picture captions were fantastic. And then yeah, they were, good. they were, and then if I, if he, he tweeted once and he said, it's come to my attention that I have some visually impaired followers. And so I'm going to start sending multi-sensory things. And he started doing audio recordings. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Can't, I'm dying to interview him. I love space. Thank you, Carl, for so saying I. that. I, Astronomy I wanted... like you, Christine, is Yay. I, See? my passion. Oh, my God. I love See, JJ, everyone wants the astronomy. Oh everyone Fonts. Yeah. Fonts oh. say so oh much. But yeah. when was the last time anybody ever described a font? I mean, I've worked on a few tactile pieces. Uh, there were some. Uh, oh, that I cool. created a tactile tour for a couple for the Andy Warhol Gallery, and one of them is the Brillo box. So Andy Warhol loved to recreate uh, commercial packaging, and he did so with the right. Brillo box. It's one of his more famous uh, sculptures, and so this tactile version was wonderful because it's it was really clean and clear. And so as I'm guiding people with a, with a tactile description, use your left hand, sweep your thumb, you'll find this. And, and you got to feel that there are three or four different kinds of fonts and the same with the Campbell soup can. You've yeah, got yep. the curving, the lead in stroke on the, on the C for Campbell's. And then the E in Campbell's looks like a letter, the number three, which is an interesting different, that's an interesting font choice. And so it actually was a 
wonderful use of, I mean, not only because it was a fun thing to, to, to touch and to guide people around, but getting a sense of those different kinds of fonts, an italicized font versus a, a font that, that had a shadow. You know, these are different, different things that you were able to feel <laughs> and understand in a different way because you had that tactile experience. It was a, they were, they were really great pieces. The pyramids and the Sphinx and all that, like just things that people toss out in conversation. And then I realized, and I tossed it out and then I realized I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, we all do that. We yeah, all do that. I mean, I, well, a lot of sighted people doing that too. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> no, but I can't even see it to know what it is. Like, yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know what shape it is. I don't know what like size it is. Like some of the yeah. things I just yeah. love your podcast because it's like that. Like you get to know these things so much. Well, think- Part of the reason that I love uh, the, the podcast, the way it works is that, so when we talk about, we did a one on, on the ice sheets, the melting ice sheets, yeah, and you can get a literal description, but I kind of want to know what's the emotional impact of looking at it. And that's why I love the fact that I can ask JJ questions. So the Northern Lights, like that episode was a bit unusual because I didn't want to just know what they looked like. I want to know what what's it like to look at them. And that's yes. something that I think it's harder to communicate. And so I that's why I love working with JJ. He's just a natural born storyteller and he's able to, you, I'm not talking about like you, like you're not here, JJ. You have a, an ability to put, put someone in the, in the spot and uh, communicate what it, it's actually like to experience that yeah. not just what it looks like and that's well, and one of was, the strengths of the podcast yeah and it was great to be given permission to do that because as the d- describers are often expressly told not to right this isn't Aww. about us it's not about our experiences it's about providing a neutral and that's obviously still important to, in the way we're doing this but there are times when i do appreciate when you say no 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 let, let's go let's go past that like how does that feel what what was the, what was the experience like because i think there there there's there's something to be gained by having that element added to the descriptive rich conversation for sure we're going to shift gears a bit. Neil uh, emailed in a question, which is really interesting. It's about the look of TV shows now in in the pandemic. And are we seeing a shift into people living the way we are living? So wearing masks, being on Zoom all the time. And it's it's funny because I hear a lot of sighted people say this all the time, which is they'll look at a, they'll be watching a show or a movie from from the before time and they'll see people and they'll have this panic reaction like oh my god all those people are in one place or holy crap those people aren't wearing masks or you can't hug that person you don't know them and so it's (laughs) it's in become um internalized very quickly for us to observe the protocols but um neil was curious about what we are seeing in tv shows that might not be described or might not be obvious to a non-sighted viewer around uh the kind of pandemic lifestyle we're having so jj is that something that is being reflected in popular uh tv right now as I walk around and, and when I have questions or when we have a, a, a conversation coming up, when we're about to record, I'm walking around town and I'm thinking these things. I'm thinking about uh, how I'm going to answer these questions and how I'm going to dive into this. And as I was walking around thinking about this specific question, I noticed a bus ad for the TV show, The Connors. This was like the Roseanne show, Roseanne's old show. And the image for the for the you know the ad for the upcoming season has a is a picture of the 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 connor's family and they're all together it's like a family photo and they're all wearing covid masks 
And oh. that's, the, it, it has gotten to the point, we've been in this long enough now that there are, there's new media, there's new TV, there are new movies that are being written and produced in this lockdown era. And in some cases, they're not using the lockdown as a, as a plot point. It's not necessarily being addressed in the story. But the people who are making these productions are still having to, to work and live in a lockdown world, in a lockdown situation. So they're having to adapt the way these things are being produced. And you can hear it and you can see it in, in the way some of these shows are coming across. So... Uh, for example, uh, there's a new Netflix show called Social Distance. This is made in and is about the pandemic. But there are soap operas that have kept filming and they're not necessarily addressing the pandemic specifically. I've got a friend who watches Coronation Street. I don't know if anyone else out here is uh, anyone else on the call with us is a, Cor is a Corey fan. What I've heard about this, about about Corey, is that uh, on Coronation Street, everyone is standing far apart all the time. It doesn't matter if the people, if the actors are supposed to be portraying husband and wife or family members, they're not in real life. So they're not bubbled and they therefore have to stand far apart when they're in a scene together. So my friend was laughing at this notion of like a husband and wife in the living room having breakfast, but one's having their tea on one side of the room and the other one's having the, their toast on the other side of the room. And so there are, there are, there's no touching, there's no physical contact. It means a lot of the romantic plots in some of the American sitcoms are, or pardon me, some of the American soap operas are, have to be toned down a little bit. Um, yeah. Janice is saying that the actor, are wearing masks and their offices are set up with barriers on all rise on CBS. Um, this is this is a thing that is happening. There there are people uh, actors who are having to film um, separately. So some shows what they've done is they've actually decided to instead of bringing their actors into set, they are whenever possible having actors film themselves in their homes. So they're actually adjusting the scripts so that more of the character interaction is taking place on phones or in Zoom calls or in other ways that they can film them separately. And what they do is the producers send the actors a mini filmmaking kit that includes cameras, mics, lights, and a green screen backdrop. So they can put this green screen backdrop up in their room, in their, you know, uh, in their living room or bedroom, wherever they've got space, and they can act in front of it. And then in post-production, they can move those the, the, those characters to different settings using the green screen effects. So you can see this. If you're someone who's watching these shows, you can, you can see this because first of all, you can tell that this is green screen, unless it's really good green screen. Um, it, it, you can probably tell uh, by the visuals of that. It's the, the background and the actors look distant. They don't look like they're filmed in the same light. So there are ways to visually see the green screen effect. Um, you'll again, notice that there are characters having uh, conversations on phones, right? There are very few shots with multiple people uh, in close contact in some of these shows, but you can hear this as well, right? You can hear that the sound is a little bit off because if you're, if actor one is filming in their bedroom and it's a rather small bedroom and actor number two, 
two is filming in their living room and it's a great big living room, you can hear the difference. There's just, even in post-production, they can't quite uh, match those sounds up perfectly. So in drama situations, um, that's how they're handling it. Cooking shows is another interesting thing. Uh, cooking shows have done really well in this kind of pandemic lockdown situation because a, a good like cooking shows these days, what's, what's popular are small and nimble cooking shows a lot of these chefs uh, were already filming at home for web content. So they were already set up. And of course, they're, a lot of these chefs have their at-home kitchens are, are beautiful. These are showpiece kitchens, right? Beautifully designed with islands and gorgeous countertops and ranges. So they're already set up for this. And of course, with small digital cameras and mics, you can set up multiple cameras uh, in your at-home kitchen. You can hang an overhead camera. You can have handheld. You can do all kinds of different things. And in some cases, the chefs who are filming these, uh, either digital content or if they're filming, uh, you know, broadcast shows, they're getting their family members to participate. So I know Alton Brown, he does like a quarantine kitchen. And I think it's his wife, Elizabeth, who films. Um, and he's got an overhead camera set up. He does some handheld work. I've seen some stuff that Gordon Ramsay's done where he films with his family. He's not quite as nasty to his family members, although he's not as polite as uh, would be expected in uh, my kitchen, I have to say. And so <laughs> a lot of this content gets distributed online, but also, uh, you know, makes its way to broadcast too. So that's, that's the kind of stuff that, uh, that I'm seeing and hearing in, uh, like, in terms of uh, television and the lockdown pandemic situation. Again, to, to shift gears, and in a minute, you're going to love my pun that I just made there. Um, uh, uh, Matthew in Australia, JJ is giggling because he knows what's coming. Um, <laughs> Matthew in Australia, I, okay, I admit it. He sent this. And I went, Are you freaking kidding me? What is this? What is this? What fresh hell is this? He asked if we could describe a race car crash. And, and I'm just, I'm just going to sit back and, and let JJ take this on because I know other people are interested, whereas I was just scratching my head. So you, you really want to know about that? But people do. And I totally get it. So I'm just going to sit back and, and JJ, do, do your worst. This was a big crash. This was a few weeks ago, uh, the Bahrain Grand Prix. Uh, it's a, this is a Formula One car race. And it was in the first lap. And this crash was... It was extraordinary. And before we go too far down into it, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the guy was fine. The driver was okay. So, which I feel is important to let you know as I describe this, because it gets pretty intense, but knowing it's okay, I think is is one of the reasons why this became, uh, you know, it was almost a meme. This, this, it was certainly viral. Video clips of this went all over the place. At the F1 circuit, they actually tried to, uh, rein it in. They tried to get some of the video content back and they blocked a lot of stuff online. Anyway, it's pretty intense. Let's start by describing a Formula One car because the car is actually, it, it, it really, it hardly resembles the kinds of cars that we have driving down the street. And it does, it does have an impact on, on the crash itself. So 
you've got four tires. That's really where the similarities between F1 cars <laughs> and, and street cars, you know, begins and ends. Um, so the, the, the front two tires in an F1 car are a little bit smaller than the, than the, the tires in the rear. And these are fully exposed tires. So they're not in wheel wells that are under the car, like you would find in most street cars. These are sticking out the sides of the vehicle. So there's nothing on top of these wheels. They're fully exposed. The nose of the car, very, very narrow. So and like I'm talking shoulder width, like literally the shoulder width of the driver, that's the hood of the car. And it comes down between those two front wheels and dips in front of the tires. And there there's a flat panel that's really only it, like inches off of the ground. And it's a flat panel that has some kind of small fins on it. Each one is different in, because they're, they're, they're trying to achieve different uh, aerodynamic qualities uh, that are well above my pay grade. Um, but it's a very, very, very thin hood that goes down and, the, and, and, and where it comes back, it, that's where the driver sits. So the driver is sitting uh, you know, directly back from this nose, this hood, um, in the middle of the vehicle in, a, in an exposed, in an open roll cage, essentially. Um, so open air, there's just a bar overhead, uh, as this uh, driver, Romain Grosjean, was uh, really uh, pleased with. He was happy that there was this bar over his head. And the driver's cockpit, this open cockpit, is flanked on either side by what I believe are like air intakes, these are directly behind the front tires. And this is where the air rushes in and feeds the motor, which is behind the driver. And this is a great big engine, right? It's actually quite a bit higher than the driver's exposed head. It's really quite high. And then at the back, at the rear, there again, there's two exposed tires, a little bit bigger than the, than the front tires, and they're connected. The rear tires are connected by a fin that kind of looks a little bit like a tall bench. So straight sides and then a cross piece. And again, this is about the aerodynamics, right? Um, so that's the basic Formula One car. Now, Romain Grosjean, um, what happened in his race is he was he was trying to cut across the the track right through the middle of a pack again this is right at the beginning of the race the first lap of the race so most of the cars are still fairly close together and for some reason grosjean decides to cut through the pack from left to right and a lot of the cars or all of the cars have cameras mounted in various parts of the car. So you can get different angles. And, and a lot of those angles have been presented to the public. Not, not all, but some of them have been presented to the public. And you can see from one car, you can see Grosjean's vehicle coming across and his rear right tire rolls over the front left tire of the car behind him. And when he does this, his car gets immediately is out of control and he continues cutting across out of the uh, uh, off of the track across the shoulder all the way to the right and some of the video I've seen is from Grosjean's point of view. So it's on this driver's car. You got his head, his um, mounted camera and you can see him cutting across. You can see him 
bumping, right? There's a jerk to the, to the camera. And then he continues off of the track, off of the shoulder, and he is heading straight for a steel barrier. This is a waist high steel barrier, the kind that you find at the, uh, on the edge of a highway. And he's heading more or less straight for it. And then the F1 people cut that camera. They don't let the they haven't let the public see the crash from his point of view. And that, but you can find it from others. And what happens is he goes right into the steel barrier at very high speed. It's been estimated at something like 137 miles per hour. There's an immediate explosion big ball of flames and it's difficult to see what's going on because the flames are so intense but what you can tell when you there's uh there have been slow motion footage released and they have uh um some schematic breakdowns of people have created to, to kind of break down this crash so you can see what has happened is that the nose crashes into the barrier and starts burying itself in this now tangled steel barrier. And the back half of the car snaps off and it actually skids along the length of the barrier on the track side without ever breaking through. And the nose of the vehicle with the driver in it, with Grosjean in it, gets buried further and further into this tangled of steel barrier until he's actually on the far side. And that's where the ball of flames is. He's, he's in the middle of this ball of flames. He's completely engulfed. And for something like 27 seconds, there's no sign of him. You can't see him. He's in this ball of flames. Medical cars are coming up. A few uh, small fire vehicles arrive, not big fire trucks, but, uh, you know, medic vehicles. Um, and, and they get out and, and the fire is still raging. And then suddenly the driver, Grosjean, jumps out of the fireball. And he scrambles over this crumpled steel barrier, which is actually now closer to like chest height because it's been, you know, it's been twisted and bent up. And he actually manages to hop over this, uh, this barrier with, frankly, more grace and athleticism that I could muster on a good day. And before he even lands, two crew members with fire extinguishers start like spraying him down. They whisk him off to one of the medic's cars. He's not on fire. He's under his own power. He's He runs there by himself. They help him, you know, like holding on to him, but he's really running by himself. He sits down in this medic's car. He takes off his helmet and he looks more or less fine because he's wearing the fire you know retardant suit and the only uh real injuries he had were to his hands his hands were quite badly burnt and he had a, a significant uh, ligament torn on one thumb but otherwise in the middle of a ball of flames a car crash at 137 miles per hour and he literally walks out under his own power it was incredible is he wearing a full-on helmet and face covering and so okay fire retardant yeah. i that's that's something i didn't know he's so he's wearing a flame retardant sort of suit but does that cover his i guess not his hands but his face and yeah. head as well the, the suits that these drivers wear are like head to toe, uh, right down to the wrists. So the gloves are a different material and that's why they, they don't work as well, but they need to have some 
more dexterity. Obviously, they need to be able to grip things with their fingers and whatnot. But the, from otherwise, it's like a very tight snowsuit, really, is what it looks like. A big one piece um, with a zipper up the front. That's and, and right up to the neck. And the helmet is the kind of uh, like a motorcycle helmet is where you would see this most commonly. And, and, and it is a full face shield uh, almost like an astronaut's helmet goes all the way around to the back of the neck. And so the whole head is encased with the, with the, the shield down uh, right to the, right to the wrists, right to the ankles, boots and whatnot. So really looks like he's wearing a very svelte snowsuit is really what it looks like. I think his was all black. Wow. That's, yeah. that's extraordinary. Wild. Oh wild. Blood curdling. Blood yeah. curdling. <laughs> We love making this podcast. If you love hearing it, perhaps you'll consider supporting its creation and development by becoming a patron. We've set up a Patreon page to help cover the costs of putting this show together. You can contribute as a listener or as a sponsor to help ensure that accessible and entertaining journalism continues to reach our community. Visit patreon.com slash talk description to me. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash talk description to me. Have feedback or suggestions of what you'd like to hear about? Here's how to get in touch with us. Our email address is talkdescriptiontome at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is called Talk Description to Me. Our website is talkdescriptiontome.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at talkdescription. Description.